Rye and Types, your favorite podcast about music, food, and programming. We are, have a special guest today, Dave Zwieback, who's here hanging out with us. We are all hanging out in different locations. One of us is covered in snow, or co- their place is covered in snow, and the other is not so much yet, but maybe, maybe soon. You were just brought in by Peter Rowan and the song Raven, which is cool. This is actually the first bluegrass song we've had. Dave picked it out, so I'm kind of curious why he picked it. It's a cool song. I'm 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 interested to hear. You know, I I'm kind of late to this to this party. I discovered this this artist, uh, Peter Roman, like a couple of years ago. A friend of mine turned me on uh, to him. The thing that that I was surprised to to find is he had like this totally authentic bluegrass song, which had a Buddhist mantra in the end. And I was just like, you know, taken with that. I was like, wow, that's that's a pretty interesting thing so i started to kind of dig into this artist and i found out that you know his his kind of worked with bill monroe so this is going back way way back and he's also you know 72 or 73 at this point and still very very strong and the album that that the song raven raven is is from is just amazing and there's songs on it that are totally bluegrass but i could hear like radiohead playing them or any modern uh, artist playing them so um I found that very, very interesting. That's cool. Did you did you find it via the bluegrass connection or the Buddhist connection? Was it like you're listening to other bluegrass music and you discovered this or the other way around? Yeah, through the Buddhist connection. So I am, I am supposedly Buddhist or something like that. Uh, and the friend of mine who sort of turned me on to it was like, yeah, check this out. And so then, then I did. And it was kind of like, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing. Buddhism, and not to get into all of that, is not kind of it's not religion it's more like a philosophy or or a, a belief system a way of life or whatever you call that like it, it allows for in, in some ways for things like this which is like you know you you could be singing the the deepest of american music and you know be buddhist and 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 have a part of that you know buddha dharma in your songs i, I found that really kind of interesting that's cool because of the Beatles all being released on on Spotify recently, I was recently listening to that, which got me listening to all the old George Harrison albums too. And there's some amazing similar style things where he's playing these kind of traditional rock ballad type songs, but inflected with this uh, Buddhist or uh, Eastern belief system inflections in them too. And I, I, I always love that music. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what that's one of my like favorite interviews of of all time is I think it might have been the last interview George Harrison did on like VH1, where it's like it's on YouTube. It's like forty five minutes, and he talks about like basically everything under the sun, and he sings some songs just unplugged, and it's amazing because like I, you know uh, I th- I think he was a you know Hindu practitioner. You know he he was like a real it was the real deal. Like he was it wasn't watered down. It wasn't pop. You know, psychology wasn't pop Buddhism or pop Hinduism. It was like, you know, here's somebody who has actual real experience with, you know, sitting and meditating and and uh, and and all that stuff. And it it made me look at all his all all his stuff, right? All his Beatles stuff in a totally new way. For sure. Like I can't even think about what it must have been like, 
you know, being coming of age in Woodstock era kind of and being surrounded by kind of this onslaught of peace, love, but also a lot of Eastern philosophy too, like mixed in with it and trying to sort that out and trying to come out way with something coherent out of it. I think a lot of people, you know, definitely that was their first exposure to all of that. But um, it's interesting that, yeah, he definitely, and I think a lot of people came away from that whole time, you know, being enlightened in a different way, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think he had a huge influence on on a whole bunch of people, for sure. I don't know, maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a segue, but I'm just going to give up. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. The segue segue. of no segue. (laughs) He can edit in the segue. I'll edit in the segue, which is just, you know, (laughs) (laughs) some Should we say that? So, you know, you published a book a little while ago, and I think that's, you and I had talked about that before. Uh, offline and I'm interested to hear from you about two different aspects about that that are relevant to us one is just the act of writing a book which is something that we're in the process of doing now too and uh, so I'm curious to hear you know how you went about that what that was like for you especially a tech technical book which is a whole different category for a lot of people and also it's about you know this idea of how to how to organize teams and how to think about technical teams and their communication in a way that I guess makes them better and makes them happier and and I don't want to say just more efficient but just better teams and and I think it's a really interesting approach that you've espoused about using psychology and using a lot of these other fields to kind of think about how we think about especially systems teams and things like that people who have to have to do these kind of postmortems and have to deal with uptime and downtime and the crises around them and so you know let's let's talk about that first let's talk about you know what if you want to give us like a summary of the book or talk about the philosophy behind it and then we can talk about kind of the psychology and the how we how we talk about teams the book actually is it kind of started out as as a technical book, you know, like here's how you do postmortems and whatnot. But then it quickly evolved into essentially a, a fictional narrative that illustrates a lot of the concepts about, again, not so much about postmortems, but about team health. What we're dealing with at, at the end of the day here is very much organizational health, right? And the organizations that are able to deal with the immense complexity of the stuff that we're creating and the stuff that we're putting together, you know, the systems that, that we work with, they certainly are not getting any less complex anytime soon. And the organizations that are able to deal with that increase, increasing complexity, basically by l- continually learning from them, from how these things work and how these things fail, these are the organizations that will survive. Incidentally, and exactly like you said, these are the organizations that are much better to work in, like from an from a employee perspective. You know, there's a lot of talk about like learning, learning organization and Peter, Peter Senge and all this stuff, right? But there's very little that I found personally about like, how do you go about building an organization that is a learning organization? Like I'm, I'm, I'm down, I want that, like this, this, but like, how do you actually do that? What I wound up writing about is sort of the, the two biggest obstacles uh, to building these kinds of learning organizations or teams that continually learn. And basically it's blame and it's bias. Those two things, they will stop the learning in its tracks. 
or the learning that you come out with from some kind of an incident, be it success or, or failure, be very, very shallow, right? It's like, ah, oh, yeah, well, you know, Bobby or Sue, they do this all the time, and that's basically them, and it's something about their personalities, for instance, right? So, and by the way, that could work either way of like, oh, you know, like, how, how is it that this thing that shouldn't work is actually successful? Well, as Bobby and Sue, they do their special magic, you know, and they know, like, the back ways around the system, and therefore, they, they make it work. And that, that shallow learning is super comfortable. Yeah, it's really, it, it feels so nice, because it's like, yep, here's the culprit, you know, the hero, or the villain, you know, it's like it's like uh, the the fairy tales of yore. You know, everything's super clear. It's comfortable. We can just go back to sleep. And then, of course, uh, we've learned very little. We've left a ton of learning on the table. The the central issue, uh, you know, in in my book and in general in building these kinds of learning uh, teams and organizations is well, how do you overcome blame uh, and bias? And blame and bias are very related. You know, I think some people even think that blame is a type of bias. And bias is, you know, just quick judgment, jumping to conclusions almost automatically. And so how do you overcome that? Yeah, so that's basically what the book deals with. But I'll tell you, kids, don't try this at home. <laughs> do, do not write books <laughs> or, or do and have very, very supportive uh, spouses and, uh, I don't know, lots of medication or something like that. <laughs> yeah, prescription or otherwise. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I think it it comes at a time when there's a lot of talk. You're right, not only about learning, but about bias beyond just organizational bias or cognitive bias, but bias as a human being, like laying out what they think before they've even really thought about it, which I guess is cognitive bias. But I mean, as a general thing, beyond just the technical side, like we, we end up thinking about this and talking about this a lot because, you know, it relates to social justice. It relates to a lot of other things that we, we end up spending a lot of time thinking and talking about. It's, it's a strange part of the human mind that we don't, we don't think about because it, it's, our brain is doing this work for us. Thinking fast and thinking slow is that book that was going around a while ago. That was, that was really great read on this topic. And, it's just interesting how destructive that can be. But like you said, it's a, it's a blankie. It's like a security. It's a security thing for us to make us feel better when times are tough, especially, or when things are a little harder to think through. Uh, like, so Daniel Kahneman, who wrote that book, I mean, he's, he's a sort of the person uh, along with his partner, uh, what's his last name, Tversky or something, who sort of discovered these cognitive biases, right? And, and just for our listeners, right? Like, hey, what's the capital of France? That's it, right? Done. There's almost nothing you can do to keep Paris from coming in, in your mind. And that's, that's the resolution, so to speak, of thinking, right? Of processing that we're dealing with. So this is basically how biases work. It's, it's quick, almost automatic. There's almost nothing you can do to stop them. Uh, what Kahneman talks about, he says uh, he's no better at being able to spot biases in himself 40 years later, after 40 years of studying them, than he was when he first started studying them. So that there's not a lot of good news around biases. The, the only thing that seems to work, that there's two, there's two things. One is, one of the most prevalent biases, uh, and the one, the one that sort of best studied is, is hindsight. You know, basically where we think we sh knew something back then in the past, that we only know now. This one is actually reasonably easy to spot because it's very apparent in language. Anytime you hear 
uh, should have, could have, didn't, if only. Like, so literally you can, there's somebody actually wrote a, 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 a Chrome plugin that replaces these phrases in, in web pages with uh, somebody at Etsy, of course. It is possible, and, and, I, and I say this from, for, from my own experience, it is possible to spot that in language. And the moment you spot that, you know that you're under the influence of hindsight bias. So that's one bit of good news that uh, I can share. The other is once you have a team of people who are reasonably well-versed in the most common kind of biases, like that one, hindsight bias or outcome bias or fundamental attribution error, things like that, you can spot them in other people pretty easily. And so if you have a reasonably safe working environment where you can, you can say, hey, Aaron, it sounds like what you just said, it's, I mean, it sounds a little bit like, you know, outcome bias, right? Or it sounds like hindsight bias. Like, do we really know that, uh, you know, this thing that we're talking about, did we really know that when this was happening or is, are we just making it up now? With those two things, you know, we have some ability to actually counteract them. But other than that, other than trying to really slow things down and to really think about it and to get a bunch of people with diverse opinions in the room and like, is this, is this really true? Is this really how it happened or how it might happen? There's not a lot of good news about that. Other things that I've read or heard about is not only for assessing, you know, uh, a situation that happened in the past, but around creating a uh, organization that is inherently less biased is to change and shape the procedures that are used for hiring or for decision making or, or, or things like that so that they can are, are less influenced by uh, the types of bias that, that you're talking about. How, how, did, how did you first start? Uh, getting interested in, in applying uh, these ideas to organizational psychology and, and how how groups and companies and stuff like that work? Well, I mean, I initially got interested in the same way that Aaron, Aaron did, which is reading Thinking Fast and Slow. And, oh, okay, cool. And also, you know, hearing folks like John Allspy and, and others kind of talk about that in, in our little DevOps uh, utopia. Look, I've been, I've been, I've been in this business quote-unquote, for like 20 years, right? And so um, I spent 15 years, probably half of the, my first 15 years in and out of finan big financial institutions and working with big companies. I've seen a lot of failure. And I've also seen some success, to be fair. And I've seen all kinds of basically old wives' tales about how those things were, you know, like why was that successful or why did that fail? Especially in finance, there was this like unspoken practice essentially that like if you fucked up you're gone and it wasn't like oh well let's sit down and talk about it let's see what we can learn from it and maybe it's a organizational issue after all etc cetera, etc cetera, right and when i first came in contact with all this stuff i was like that works but like it's just never going to work in places like like where i worked but over time i actually recognized that there's a little bit of a kind of natural selection going on what's happening is places like etsy are not only able to keep their systems up and build better systems, they're also be, be able to attract and keep, you know, people that we're all fighting sort of or competing for the same talent, you know, or the same talent pool. And because places like Etsy, and, and I don't mean to just say Etsy, but there's a bunch of uh, companies that have made this like part of their culture, 
Like, let's learn from whatever happens instead of blaming people and kicking people out. Let's build the kinds of uh, organizations where that's possible, where there's built-in safety, right? Where nobody gets fired or punished or demoted or moved to a different division for doing their job or for working in a complex, for being part of a complex system. Because people have choice now, like people like us, you know, in terms of places to work, but also because those places tend to, like organizational health is correlated to performance, right? So those are, those are the, 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 the places that will replace the old places where safety isn't a focus or learning isn't a focus. You know, I'm convinced of that. It's just, it just, it will take time. And also, you know, I don't want to like make villains uh, out of finance, financial companies. Um, I will tell you that like in the workshops, in the workshops that we run, uh, you know, we do like a full day workshop, you know, where we teach all this, all this stuff, my partner and I, you know, we've, we've had people from financial companies, they, they take this away. In fact, one of, one of our best clients is, is a financial startup, you know, and they take this and they really implement this. They're, they're, they're now living this, this approach and it makes a huge, huge difference to the people working there, but also to the customers, to the stability of the systems, all that stuff. So most of the work that you do is uh, transitioning companies that, or helping transition companies that don't that don't operate this way toward working this way? Or uh, are, have you seen examples of uh, organizations that are kind of designed uh, with this in mind from the ground up? So the work that, I mean, I have a day job. I work uh, uh, as a head of engineering for, for a group at Pandora, you know, the streaming uh, media, it's called the Next Big Sound. You know, with, with my partner, we do work with companies and most of the companies we work with have been sort of more startup-y. They're much more in design mode with respect to their culture. They're much more thinking about like, how can we, what, what does that culture look like? How can we build it? How can we evolve it, et cetera, et cetera. When you're in that mode, it's much easier for us, for, uh, for us to come in and to have some kind of an impact. With large organizations it's, it's, uh, and more established organizations, that's a lot more difficult. But, you know, we're trying. I, I think over time this, this kind of thinking will, will take hold. And the reason I'll, I'll tell you that this is, um, I'm pretty convinced of that, is a lot of this stuff uh, is coming to us from airlines, from airline safety. What they've essentially discovered is with the traditional methods of dealing with failure, which is you punish and you do all the, all the usual stuff, the blame and all that, you know, you can get to a certain threshold of safety and you hit a sort of a plateau beyond which you cannot go. And in order for you to go beyond that, you have to start approaching safety and in, in this new way, basically focusing on learning, removing blame, building healthier organizations. One of the reasons why, you know, flying is by far the safest method of travel is because anytime anything happens, there's a review. And any and not only there's a review, but the results of that review are kind of, if not publicly available, they're pretty close to publicly available. They're at least available to the people that care about it, you know, which is other airlines and, and so on. So there's constant learning. That's kind of the, the idea. We talk in the DevOps kind of world, one, we talk about postmortems a lot, but we also talk about transparency around postmortems and how that's like a positive thing. And so I didn't actually know that that airlines did that too, that there was also sharing of that kind of 
accident reports or whatever format they're in beyond the companies themselves, which is really cool. But also like just thinking about it in terms of other modes of transportation, you won't start to wonder if like if every time there was a car accident, people shared reports of like how that accident happened in a meaningful way. Car safety was better as a percentile or like even, you know, shooting accidents and stuff like that, which is things where there aren't a lot of publicly available information around that. And I wonder if that's something that, you know, is even possible to change long term. Yeah, I mean, I think I hope so. What I know about car accidents is they've been pretty much stuck at a they've reached that plateau. Right. And so I think the last major improvement was when uh, in terms of fatality rates was when uh, airbags were introduced. But people keep, you know, they keep driving drunk. They keep, you know, there's bad weather and text texting while driving is, I guess, the number one thing now. Right. And so, I mean, that that's that's a good thing. And so it's like you look at it. And so it's a very complex system, right, because you've got a bunch of people on the road. You cannot predict how these things go. And there's some rules. Right. But people are not following those rules. Like there's a very clear rule. Like don't text. Don't drink and drive. Like there's there's absolutely no uh, confusion about the fact. Well, could I do that between the hours of six and seven? I mean, like, no. Okay. Well, gee, didn't know that. And yet, people continue to do that. So the question that we we ask in in this kind of in the new way of thinking is instead of sort of blaming the people, oh, like you know that idiot, like he got drunk or he was or she was texting, you know, while driving, and therefore that's that's the reason the accident occurred. The question we want to ask is, well, how is that even possible? There, there, is, there is a fragility within the system. This, this type of accident, there's absolutely nothing in the system that actually prevents that from happening. The, the risk is there. If we had cars that had a little, um, what do you call it, breathalyzer thingy uh, in order to start it, that removes some of the risk. If we had cars that blocked a cell signal or text thingies, Right, somehow, or there's software that blocked that, and I know there's some stuff out there, but then it would it would it would remove that the potential for that type of an accident entirely from the system. So that's kind of one one thing. So we have to recognize that that fragility, that that potential for that ri- for that accident is is there, is in the system always, and there's there's nothing that we've done yet to remove that. And so blaming people for for doing something is not actually going to address the underlying conditions. That make this possible like to bring it back to computers like they're probably pretty common example would be system administrator is on a you know the main database server and doing some work and types something like you know rm rf something or reboot and just does something and has that you know moment that i'm sure anyone who's in uh, has ever worked in systems has when they their heart drops out of their entire body and they realize they just seriously did something horribly wrong we work in a place where are in an industry and in a field where we trade off a lot of flexibility for responsibility, right? Where like we can do anything basically as system administrators or whatever, but that also means we can shoot ourselves in the foot and do stuff like that. So compared to the texting and driving thing, I mean, it's like we generally have some systems in place, like actual automated systems in place to prevent us from doing those things. But even with that, 
we still manage to mess up sometimes or do things in the wrong way because we're human and we don't always think through things 100% or whatever the reason. And so how do you approach a situation like that? Like what what's the mode of is that like just the upper threshold where someone there there's always going to be things that go wrong and we just we accept that and move on or is there something we can learn from situations like that that can actually bring us into further understanding and correctness. Well, I think you, you first have to accept that things will always go wrong. And we have to accept that when things go right, their source is the same as when things go wrong. You know, it's the same systems and it's the same humans. And most of the time, these systems that we can certainly, you know, kill with a drop table command and here and the RM minus RF over there, most of the time, these systems are actually up and actually working. And the reason for that is also the humans that uh, administer them, you know, create them, all that stuff. And so once we accept that, then we can be like, well, okay, cool. So this happened. That sucks. So let's kind of first deal with the, that sucks, the, the emotion that comes up. But let's not get stuck there because it's like, oh my God, thank you so much for taking down the system. Because what you just did is you pointed out that there's an area of fragility that we might have not known about. Or, as you mentioned before, we know about it and there's not a lot we can do about it, right? And we, we choose to live with that risk in the same way that we choose to live with the risk of basically, you know, dying in a car accident every time we get on the road. So, and then if there is something that we can do about it, then we could, we could try to learn from what happened. Like, how was this thing possible? It's, it's very easy. You take any operator out, like from any bad thing that happened, you take people out and you, and you put new people in, you can do it mentally. You can guarantee to me that this particular incident will never, ever, ever happen again with these new, better people. Yeah, never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we know it's not, it's not only about the people. And, and where the organizational stuff comes in, right, is, and since you, you, you mentioned like database administrators, right, the, the classic case, like this, this, you know, we do the workshops publicly and, you know, occasionally, we're just blown away by what people tell us. In, in our worlds, right, I don't know anybody, for instance, in, in, in recent memory who's gotten fired over, you know, an outage. But then people come to our workshop and people have gotten fired, people have gotten moved, people have gotten demoted, people have gotten their bonus docked, like all that stuff. And in those kinds of environments, the DBAs are going and wiping the logs after, you know, they do something bad, supposedly. They go, they wipe the logs so that they're not found out. You know, the sysadmins are doing the same. So there's all kinds of, like, ass-covery going on. Is that a word? Ass-covery? <laughs> it is now. And so <laughs> whenever you hear that, like, if I was a leader in that organization and I heard about somebody covering their ass, I'd be like, oh, my God, there has to be so much more, like, fragility and risk in the system. Like, am I, is, is this another night capital? You, you know about that one where it dropped, like, 400 million it a day or something like that. Yeah, it's totally possible. As a leader, that would really worry me. Yeah, anytime, anytime I see organizations where communication and, like, I hate to call it transparency because it's not even transparency. It's just the act of being able to, like, share between individuals in an organization, not even, like, beyond the organization or, like, know every single detail about everything, which I, I think people assume with transparency, but just this idea that anytime you start to, like, hide things from other people, 
that's always like a smell, like a really bad smell that there's something else in the system that either people don't want to know about or like want to pretend isn't there or whatever it is. There's every time I've seen that, I'm like, oh, okay, (laughs) walk away slowly. One thing that I like to think about is that now that it seems that we found a model that we can apply to how technical teams operate uh, these complex systems like Drawing the connection between airline and automobile safety and software development and engineering is is interesting and I think definitely provides a framework for cooperation that reduces that could potentially reduce bias. One thing that I like to think about is really like where the where the imperative comes from, right? I mean, I was having a conversation with a taxi driver uh, not that long ago. U- Uber came up. This is a local cab driver. He wanted to talk about Uber and this and that and the other thing. And, you know, he was like, one thing he said I thought was interesting. He was like, well, you know, people don't think it's safe to take an Uber car, right? Uh, And so they uh, make you do all these kind of like verbal checks now, right? You're supposed to ask the driver their name. The driver's supposed to ask you their name and all this other stuff. And the point that I was trying to make to him, I was like, well, if Uber was designed with like rider safety as a design principle from the beginning, it would be pretty fucking easy to make sure that you never got into the wrong car, right? Like the phone knows where the driver is. The phone knows where you are, right? I mean, uh, unless unless this predatory driver is like on the block at the right time and like whatever, like that's just the likelihood of that is not going to happen. There's a hundred million ways to make sure that you don't get into the wrong car. I mean, if you really gave a shit, that would probably be the first thing that you pre- tried to prevent, right? I mean, because that's disastrous. So that was a roundabout way of saying that, like, I think the next bit of work that has to be done is to try to quantify, like, the distance between, like, a regular startup and a software team and, like, a big company that I... Hmm... I do this a lot, which you would know if you ever listen to this podcast. But I guess, I guess that there's kind of like a size at a size at which this kind of thinking makes sense, or there's a prevailing wisdom that you you have to be able to afford to think this way, right? People run on gut, and you know that's just how companies do it, and most companies are fine, and you know then you grow up and. Maybe you can be Etsy and have a CTO that's like also pursuing a master's degree in like industrial safety. But for most companies, who cares? Employees are miserable. They make money, ship breaks, but that's not really what it's about. Right. Um, So what what are your thoughts about that? I'm not saying I agree with that or nor do I condone it. I just think that it's really interesting because you hear a lot about this now. Like, you know, I think a lot of... CEOs probably buy thinking fast and slow for their new employees and simultaneously don't really employ any of the ideas that it contains, right? I mean, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. I, I don't really know what this phenomenon is called, but I see it all the time when I talk to people about this, the, these types of cultures or, you know, companies that work in sort of self-organizing, self-managing ways, et cetera. Like they hear it and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, I get it. It makes sense. It's logical. The next question they'll ask is, well, how does it scale? 
the real question they're asking is, how can I make myself comfortable by labeling that thing that you just told me about as other? It's other making. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that only works in startups. Oh, that, that only works with, you know, teams of 10 or 20 or whatever. But like, you know, we, what do you want? You know, we have a 75,000 person workforce and oh, well. And again, this is, this is, I think, a defense mechanism in many ways. Because the question is not, how do I become Etsy? That, that would never work. It's that, that's not the point. It's not how you become Toyota or how do you become Etsy or how do you become Amazon. It, you can't you can't borrow culture. What you can do is you can look at what seems to be working over there and start asking questions about like, well, why is it working or how is it working? Can this work here? And in what way can it work? What experiments do I have to run so that I can prove to myself whether or not it works or not? That's what that's that's the question that we can be asking. But it's a, it's a very uncomfortable question because, you know, it points to the thing of it's probably fine until it's not. Yeah, that always that always makes me think about like this uh, common thread that we talk about where there's like this big difference between learning incrementally and and trying improving incrementally versus this idea that I don't think it's just startup, but in technology in a lot of different places People truly believe in order to improve, sometimes you have to like just burn the world down and start fresh or like start something completely different or do something differently. Where in fact, like, you know, pulling little things and having the self awareness and having the organizational awareness to know that you can take these reasonable amount of learning from other teams and how they do things and try to apply them to how you do things without having to be copy exactly what another team does and the yeah i've seen that reluctance too to like to this idea that change can happen in in meaningful way without without a revolution or whatever it is i mean the, the way that we we see it happen i'm trying to think if we ever seen it happen top down like you know sort of the the uh, here read this book and you know, we're going to do this from now on. Uh, I mean, it could happen, but that, 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 that seems like a recipe for disaster, actually. How we've seen organizational change happen is little by little, there's a team that does something weird and probably in a shadow that is allowed by, you know, larger, some anonymity and some lack of transparency that is actually, in this way, a good thing with large companies, right? And then people sort of get wind of it and go, wow, you know, there's something, something cooking over there. Like, they, 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 people seem to be happy over there. People want to join that team. Like, and there's less turnover and, wow, they're kicking ass. They're releasing more product and faster and with higher quality. And it kind of sort of spreads in that way. And it's not that the sort of the executive or the leader's role is to, not to minimize that, but the executive's role is to recognize that something special is happening in a little corner, in a little dark corner, like we're all in, and to, to amplify that, to be like, well, could, could other teams do something like that? You know, what, what, do you, what do you know? You know, share it. That's up to the leader. So there's, there's kind of both the local uh, experimentation and optimization and then the, the, the blowing it up uh, organizationally. And that's how we've seen it happen. If nothing else, if you're having trouble at your company uh, or with your CEO, 
go to Amazon.com and buy them a copy of Dave's <laughs> book, Beyond Blame, published by O'Reilly, I think, right? People will know this recommendation is real because I don't even have a referral link to send them. I'm not even going <laughs> to make 17 cents when you click on that link and buy, and buy the book for your CEO. But... Um, but it's bit, bitly.com slash beyond blame. Bitly.com slash beyond blame. That was enlightening for me. I think we hear a lot about that. We, we've kind of danced around and talked around this subject a lot. And so I think this is probably instructive for some of our listeners for how to kind of think about uh, introducing some of these ideas into their organizations. Thanks, Dave. We really appreciate it. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks so much, everyone. Uh, we appreciate your listening and support. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash types. You can tell your grandparents to uh, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beatsridetypes. Uh, that's a diss uh, <laughs> to Facebook. Uh, we don't have a Snapchat, so you know we're not uh, cool at all. So you can't follow us on Snapchat. We're not on Peach, I don't even we're not think on peach yet. We're not on Peach. We're not peach peach.cool slash beats right types you can donate dollars to us every month at patreon.com slash beats right types you can also pre-order a copy of our pizza book called the pizza book at i think pizza pizza dot beats right types dot com correct uh and yeah thanks everyone for joining us uh dave do you have any other any other any other words to to take us out you should order the pizza book. <laughs> do it. Yeah. Come on, exactly. do it. You should. Da- How Dave, is, Dave is gluten-free, and he's still telling you to order the pizza book. Yeah, it's dope. <laughs> I, 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 it's I already dope. ordered. I'm waiting with bated breath and all that. So. Yeah, it's dope. It's ill. All right, thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>